I want to take on the death and resurrection of Jesus from two perspectives. And I think this is kind of comprehensive, but pretty broad brushstrokes. You know, it's like, um, like really kind of, what is it? Uh, what was that guy's name? Rob, Bob, Bob Ross? Bob yeah. Ross? Was yeah. he the guy? Really kind of broad Bob Ross kind of painting going on here. You know, just a few accidents and a couple happy trees. And, uh, and then that's going to be sort of the scope of it. And hopefully you can fill it in as you contemplate and just uh, meditate. Or even if you don't want to use a big word, just think about Jesus Christ <laughs> rising from the dead um, on this Easter Sunday. So uh, we'll look at the verse here in a second, but let me just talk about how I want to approach the death and resurrection of Christ. I want to look at it from two perspectives. One is, and this comes out of this idea of Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. The two perspectives then. One, Jesus Christ represents you before God. In his death, he stands in your place. It's called substitution. God stands in your place and he represents you before God. And then secondly, and this is cool and really why Easter becomes such a huge part, and this is really what Wade was getting at. Christ was Christ on, on Thursday, Friday, whatever. He was, Christ was Christ on Thursday when he's dying on a cross and proclaiming to die. It is finished. It is finished and it has lasting implications. Christ was the Messiah. He was the God-man then, representing you before God. But then... The second perspective, God repre- or Jesus represents God to you. He mediates God to you. Just as much as he mediates you to God, he mediates God to you. And so from these two perspectives, and I think they just blend really well in Colossians 2. So the passage I want to look at is beginning in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. And now, I want you to get here, the he, this, this um, well, what is it, third person personal pronoun, this good little, little grammar lesson for you, it refers back to a, a subject. And the subject it's referring back to is, and you get it from the context, but it's verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him, being Christ, through faith in the working of God, who raised Christ from the dead. So, the, the subject here is God, or probably God the Father. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God the Father made you alive together with Christ. And that with is used so often in the Gospels when it, when it talks about you with Christ. You were raised with Christ, you were buried with Christ, and you were raised together, you were made alive with Christ. He forgave us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. God nailed the certificate of debt that was hostile to you to Christ's cross. It's a funny way of thinking about the nails on the cross. That was God nailing your sin to the cross of Christ. Unbelievable. 
And when God disarmed the rulers and authorities, God made a public display of them. He triumphed over them through Christ. This is a cool blending of what God is mediated to you through Christ, and you are mediated to God through Christ. Christ represented us to God. His death, and this is a word that's been used throughout the history of the church, satisfied God. Now, there's been three main ways of looking at Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. One of them is that it's a real moral example for you. Or it's somehow the love of God coming down into your hearts, making a way for you to love God. What stood between you and God was you had no motivation and you had no love and you were a God hater. That's all true. It's not the whole story. The falsity of it is thinking that's the whole story. But it's entirely true. Now, a second way is that God somehow destroyed the enemy. And this is what most of the hymns are about. The enemy is destroyed in the cross. And that's entirely true. The falsity is it's not the whole story, but it's entirely true. The enemy was slain. And whether the enemy is Satan, or death, or the curse, or sin nature, or the evil that's in society, whatever that enemy is, God, all of it. He destroyed in the cross. But that's only possible because of the third way of looking at it. And that is, God was against you. For all of his daily goodness to you, God stood against you because you were a sinner. And the holy God stood against you. Uh, This is what J.I. Packer wrote. He wrote, The substitution account grounds man's plight as a victim of sin and Satan in the fact that for all God's daily goodness to him, as a sinner, he stands under divine judgment, and his bondage to evil is the start of his sentence. And unless God's rejection of him is turned into acceptance, he is lost forever. God's, Jesus' death satisfied God who was not at peace with man because he had rebelled in sin. And this is what Paul's getting at here in Colossians. You were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. God was at work in Christ, forgiving your transgressions because Christ was your substitute. He satisfied God. Christ's death had its first effect on God, who was satisfied. Or that cool word that Paul uses sometimes. What's the cool word he uses, you know? The P word? Propitiated. God propitiated himself in Christ. He satisfied himself in Christ. You owe God nothing. Oddly. You are, and in, in because of that, you owe him everything, which is the cool thing about grace. But he's satisfied. He has nothing against you because of the blood of Christ. You were made alive together with him. And this is, ooh, this is the gospel. I don't know if you've seen this. This is an old phrase. I think it's most used by um, some cool pastor out of Chicago. I don't remember. But it's, the gospel in four words is this. Jesus in your place. Jesus in your place. The gospel in four words. 
substitution. As Paul says, Christ died for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Christ gave to give his life as a ransom for many. And specifically Romans 3, this is the passage on substitute. Well, maybe not the, Romans 5 is cool too. But Romans 3 says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Long-winded way, like Paul is so prone to do, of saying, God is now just and the justifier. He justly forgives you because He justified you. God could not pardon your sin without the death of a substitute, which we find in Christ. But, that's actually not the end of the story. That is sort of objective Christ in your place. But there's the other side of that. Christ represents God to you. And this then is the gospel in four more words. Jesus as God's love. John 3.16 is very much a gospel passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is a Jesus is God's love shown to you. Jesus in your place before God. Jesus as God's love before you. Man was living under the curse of sin, separated from God. We owed a debt consisting of decrees against us. Let's just finish that passage one more time. God canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, I right away got to thinking, what in the world are these decrees that are against us? We had a certificate of debt that we owed, It consisted of decrees that were against us that were, in fact, hostile to us. Well, what are these decrees? And actually, the word decree only shows up a few times, and it's not a word you'd expect. The Greek word is, and it's actually translated this way pretty often, dogma. The the debt against you was dogma. It was, in fact, later in this chapter... If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, in verse 20, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? All right, listen to this. The decrees against you are legalism. Not the way you think about it, but that's exactly what he's getting at in Colossians chapter 2. The decrees against you are legalism. God nailed legalism to the cross. This debt consists of decrees against us, like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They were hostile to us. 
They're not just a bad way of getting to God or an ineffective way. It is hostile to you. The decrees are communal and personal religious claims that purport to or supposed to draw one away from self and closer to God through law-abiding. The weight of legalism is at least in part, and get this, it's the weapon of demons. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a dis- The armament of demons is the decrees, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is the weapon of the demonic forces right now, where they hold some sway. And now, I think, here, maybe I can help you paint a picture. We have this very Greek idea when it comes to heaven and hell, usually. We think of hell as Satan's domain. Heaven is God's domain, like Lord of the underworld, Lord of the sky, the earth is the battleground. What you have just described there is Greek mythology. Hades in the underworld, you know, and you've got, who's the god of the sky? Help me out. Zeus, Zeus god of the sky. you got Poseidon, god of the ocean, you know, and then you got land, which is where everybody battles it out. We kind of, we take that, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Hell is not a place that Satan rules. Hell is his punishment. He has no sway in hell. Hell is the dungeon in God's castle. You know who rules hell? God rules hell. You know who has exactly zero sway in hell? That would be Satan. Right here, here, this world, this is the only place Satan's ever going to have any sway by the permission of God. And And the weapons that he's wielding against you right here are do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You can earn something. You can try harder. You're not good enough. You can work at it. This, there is a ruler of the sky and a ruler of the heaven. Hell is, in fact, the dungeon in God's castle. Any belief that you can choose for yourself what is good is not simply misplaced. It is to embrace the darkness rather than the light. It is hostile to you. It is the weapon of Satan in his domain. Legalism is, in fact, death. But God in Jesus nailed death to the cross. He secured for us through Jesus the forgiveness from our choosing against him and freedom from legalism. Jesus was God's love displayed to us, forgiving us and freeing us. And this then, this, God, Jesus as God's love, Jesus as rescuing us from the hostile forces, Jesus as changing your hearts, Jesus as making faith in him possible, this is Easter. That's what Easter is, at least in part. This is the resurrection. Because Christ represented us to God and purchased our forgiveness, he now rises again to demonstrate that it is finished and to unleash his love upon you. It was all there, but you just didn't have access to it until he conquered that grave. He rose forth and he offers to you his love. We might actually be saved through faith in him now because he rose from the dead and we can believe it. He brings God to us that we may believe in him. This is only possible because of the resurrection. He represented us to God on Thursday, Friday. But he represents God to us there and then 
we actually see it. We experience it. We know it come Easter morning. He unleashes the love of God on us and says, now you can be saved through faith in my work, in my Father, in me. We need not suffer the punishment reserved for this present darkness. We need not suffer hell or even right now the bondage to evil, which is the first sort of, that's the first consequence of your sin. But we may be forgiven and free, consumed by the love of the living Jesus. Rules do not define us. Define us. Death does not own us. Love does not elude us. God does not reject us because Christ rose from the dead. This one last time. Rules do not define us. Death does not own us. Love does not elude us. God does not reject us because Christ rose from the dead. And that's why we celebrate a resurrection morning. Because we actually experience God in Jesus, changing everything. Uh, Wade, would you read Matthew 28 and just that story of the resurrection? And then after you read that, I think we should sing... Um, what's that thing I handed out? On the back of your only hope is uh, Christ the Lord is risen today. I, I can't play it, so we'll just sing it a cappella. We'll give it a go. But listen up, or follow along. This is Matthew 28, sort of the culmination, well definitely the culmination of the living Jesus Christ in the resurrection, as recorded by Matthew. Verse 8. Uh, I think verse 7 verses, I could be wrong. Verse <laughs> 7. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told them. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word.